Oh, uh, just just I've just searched it up. Uh, the word of the day today is mubble flubble. No, mubble fubble. Sorry, not flubble fubble. Mubble fubble. A sense of despondency and low spirits, as might set in on the eve of something unpleasant. And we're both going back to work tomorrow. <laughs> yes, we've both got the mubble fubbles. Hey up! I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with. I have anointed myself with the sacred oils <laughs> and begun the countdown process. Nothing can stop it now. <laughs> then let us begin, because this story starts in the Victorian era. A good yes. era. Although yes. it, it moves forwards through. Don't you worry. Ah, oh, so we, we, we leave the land of mutton chops far behind. Not that far behind. Anyway, Excellent. Constance Georgine Gore Booth was born on February 4th, 1868, at the family home on Buckingham Gate, a street in Westminster that is literally across the road from Buckingham Palace. Well, I mean, I, I assume you mean was, because <laughs> the mall's there now. <laughs> no, 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 this was down one of the side streets. Uh... I, I checked on Google Maps. If you look at the house this woman was born in and you mm-hmm. just turn it around, all you can see is Buckingham Palace behind a big <laughs> fence. So right. she was literally okay. born in view of the royal residence. She was the. Would that have been? So, can I just ask? Would that have been like considered a really privileged place to be born, or was that? Is this like a time when like crap rubbed up against gloss? Oh no, no, no! This was this was rarefied air. You you had to spend some money to to live on this particular street. And anyway, it was the second home of the family, because she was the first child of Sir Henry Gore Booth, a Protestant landowner in County Sligo in Ireland. Mm -hmm. Sir Henry had not only inherited a thirty-two thousand acre estate from his dad. But he'd also inherited a bit of an image problem. <laughs> Does he care when he's got a 32,000 acre estate? <laughs> a lot of image is solved by going, look at my massive land. <laughs> when I say an image problem, his father, Sir Robert Gorbooth, had responded to the hardship of the Great Famine, which lasted from 1845 to, uh, to 1852. Wasn't quite Jesus. that long. Jesus Christ. But it was, st- it was still, you know, a good seven years. <laughs> He, no wonder he, half of Boston thinks they're Irish. They probably are. <laughs> well, he he actually contributed to the amount of Irish people in Boston because he responded by evicting his starving tenants and having them packed into leaky ships, which were known as coffin ships, due to the amount mm. of deaths that occurred on them, for emigration Jesus. to America and Canada. Because to be fair, it was a bummer to have to watch over one million people starve to death. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to watch it. <laughs> the closest I can come to defending that action is, is is admitting that, no, you're right, I would not want to watch a million people start to death. I don't really understand it, though. Like, surely the value of the land is in what you can charge the tenants for it. Like, what, what, was he planning to replace them with more tenants? Are we still in the era of where they where everyone's on the great wheeze of, well, if we get rid of the people, we can do sheep farming? Well, is, no, is that... no, what they, what they learned was, rather than having loads of little tenement farmers paying rent, if you amalgamated them into large farms, you actually made more bang for your buck. So right. this was the perfect excuse. They were like, we're, we're starving. He's like, well, I don't want to have to look at that. And we are on the west coast of Ireland, so you're pretty much halfway to America. <laughs> yes, okay. Get Just on... the six weeks of street sailing. <laughs> I, I will pay for you to get on this ship. The thing about the coffee Where you ships, might die. <laughs> no, no, no. It was, it was built into the itinerary because they would pack enough food for about 70% of the people on there because they just assumed that people would die. 
Right, so, so the, the plan was that a third of you won't make it. Yeah, it's like... Jesus, Jesus Christ. And, 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 and even to this day, there's people in the UK who are like, well, I don't really understand what the Irish independence was all about. Yeah, I mean, basically it was a choice of, well, we can either pack more people on who will pay for the passage. Yeah. Um, or we can provide enough food for all of them, which will mean that we won't sell as many tickets. Yeah, mm. some of them look pretty much on death's door anyway. You know, that's just. And as we all know, the Irish aren't really people. So, well, not according to certain Protestant landowners during the Great Famine, at least. But luckily, right. for the remaining people of County Sligo, you yeah. know, the seven people who were still there, <laughs> Sir Henry was not a chip off the old block. And he was... no, he 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 actively disliked being known as the son of the guy who did all the horrible genocide. Yeah, and he managed to build up a bit of a reputation as a progressive landlord. Because... <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes he lets us keep almost almost half of the potatoes. <laughs> Pretty much, he, like, he he seemed to just have a genuine low level worry about sort of the health of the people whose land you know he owned right let, let's let's put it this way because I, I i doubt i'm going to be like overwhelmed or even whelmed by what his actual contribution was so my guess taking a flying guess knowing nothing about it is that he understood what the basic concept of human dignity was and didn't quite apply it equally but sort of was making inroads towards that <laughs> well let's see what you think first of all he charged significantly lower rent than all of his neighbors and right. we're talking a quarter the rent that some people were charging. Okay, given and given that the full rent would have been just about survivable, that yeah, okay, yeah. all right. Uh, he supported the construction of roads to make his tenants' lives easier. Fair so he, he helped with the infrastructure, which he didn't technically need to do. Yeah. Um, his philanthropy and care for his tenants was demonstrated most obviously, though, during another a smaller famine, a micro-famine. In the, the lesser known less famine yeah. the secondary potato famine uh, yeah. of 1879 to 1880 when he suspended rents altogether and actively provided food for his tenants at his big primary residence of Lissadell House which was a massive country pile in the heart of his estate Fair so enough. he invited everyone up to the big house for soup well like yes okay compared to literally all of the other landowners in Ireland you know, quotation marks over owners in the uh, in Ireland at the time. <laughs> he was My at God. least trying. Yeah, fair. All right, fair enough. I take back what I said earlier. I was I was unnecessarily harsh. It's just you hear member of the landed gentry and part of the UK establishment, and it's like your brain just goes, "Well, total bastard." And then you hear, "Oh, actually, compared to the rest, wasn't a total bastard." And you think, "Well, you know, your brain goes to the place of, well, probably actually still a total bastard, just not compared to." some of the worst bastards in history. <laughs> it's, it's, scored, it's scored on a curve. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. that's what I mean. Yeah, well done. You've put it far better than I could. That's why you host these things and I just sit here and go, blah, blah, blah. I make jokes about lords. Aren't they shit? <laughs> to be fair, the tenants were grateful for the free food during the famine. No, I bet they were. Although I imagine they were still a bit miffed at the fact that Lesserdale House had a two-mile drive that they had to walk up in order to get to the house from the front gate. <laughs> yeah, but like that that sort of falls under the category of like lovable eccentric afterthought, you know what I mean? Like, Not when you're like, literally starving and you've done oh, all yeah, this work point. to get to the house and like, oh I'm at the gate, finally I'll get some food and like, yeah, 
just another two miles that way. Two miles in that direction. <laughs> Through the forests, watch out for the wolves. <laughs> I mean, I guess this is a case of the, this is the most literal case of beggars can't be choosers. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> they are literal beggars. Yes. Our heroine, though, Constance, she was 11 Mm. at the time of the Second Famine and living Mm. at Lissadell with her siblings, meaning that she witnessed her father's support of his tenants firsthand. And it seemed that this inspired her with a lifelong concern for the conditions experienced by the poorest in Irish society. As as an aside, did these landowners consider themselves Irish or English or British or some... Uh, Anglo-Irish. So they considered themselves English first and foremost, but they also... Of Ireland kind of thing. Yeah, well, it was to sort of defend their holdings. They were like, well, we are English and we share English culture, but our family have been here for at least oof, four generations. Years. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we're also Irish, which means we have a, a vested right to, to own this land. Hmm. Of course. Now, initially, it's true that Constance's concern uh, was more theoretical than practical. <laughs> How do you solve a problem like the poor? <laughs> well, after all, to be fair, she was still a child and she was a member of the nobility. And as a result, she experienced quite an idyllic childhood. Yeah, learning to it's write. an arm, arm's length kind of problem. Yeah, yeah for, you know, she was like, oh, there are poor people, but I'm busy learning to ride horses and shoot game. Hmm. Uh, you know, as any child from an estate will be expected to do. <clears throat> uh, she was also taught music, poetry, art and French by a governess who was nicknamed Squidge. Which is nice. Oh, yeah, that suggests a healthy relationship with the governess. Yeah. Good old Squidge, teaching me a bit of French. Um, <laughs> Mon dieu. <laughs> but, as with most Protestants, I assume yeah. to this day, uh, she was taught practically nothing regarding Irish history, and as a result, naturally assumed that her family's land rights must have gone back beyond Magna Carta. <laughs> yeah, this oh, is, dear. This is something that's always been, surely. Yeah. The way of the world. Yes. Oliver who? Quite. Quite. <laughs> quite. The, when the word quite is rushing towards your lips, you know some Englishry is afoot. <laughs> <laughs> well. To borrow, to borrow and twist a phrase from our good friend Uncle Ruckus. <laughs> Do you know to what I'm referring to? I, I have that? no idea to what you're referring. Oh. Enlighten me. Um, I can't me. actually say the word, but there's, there's a show called Bo- The Boondocks. Oh, an yes, animated yes. show about um, I, I don't really know what it's about as such but I will say it sort of references and is involved in the sort of black culture in America it's sort of a satirical take on it and there's a character in that show called Uncle Ruckus and his um, his shtick as a character is that he is black but he hates being black and he hates all black people and all black things and is incredibly incredibly racist against black people and thinks that like you know he believes in the white saviour ideal basically mm. and it's it's like it's it's sort of like as a white person who's doubly removed from it, like I'm, I'm a, a white person, but also not American, so I don't really understand all the sort of subtleties and jokes of the whole situation, and I wouldn't really like to comment on it. But one of his most famous phrases is this powerful N-word that I can't say, ending in T-R-Y, as in N-word tree, a foot in there. And I was twisting his phrase into English tree. English tree, a foot. Yeah, which is basically we's colonialising again. Well, yeah, I mean, basically, it's we've taken over now. We control the education, so we're just going to um, rewrite history. Yeah. Essentially, yes, this this had to happen, and you brought it on yourselves, and it didn't really happen anyway. So shut up. Yeah, yeah. This is where we're at, and this is where we're staying. But regardless of her ignorance, 
you know, of the persecution yeah. of the Irish Catholics over generations. Constance took the leave from her dad and would often perform little acts of kindness for servants and the poorest on the estate. She reportedly gave the shoes off her feet to a little girl she met on the road and elected to wash her own clothes for a time after learning that the washerwoman was heavily pregnant. Unfortunately for the Gore Booths, the lower classes in Ireland were not satisfied with handouts, though, and little acts of kindness, and felt that they not, should... Not by the 1870s, when we're, you know, we're getting awful close to them revolution times. They kind of felt that they should own the land they farmed outright, without imposition and taxes from English landlords. And be free to be Catholic without being looked down on. Yeah, you know, be able to be Catholic and hold some kind of public office would be nice. <laughs> and the land wars were just warming up when Constance left Ireland in 1886 at the age of 18 mm. for Italy in order oh, to finish God. off her education because, again, nobility. You can't expect to be, you know, fully educated if you've spent most of your childhood in Ireland. No. You need to go to a, a continental country that's had an empire. <laughs> don't let it slip <laughs> this is what happens if you're too nice to the natives or you let them get too uppity you end up like italy <laughs> it's not the worst place to be i hope that when we finally accept that we are no longer a world power we, we could be italy. like the italians because if not... is, is that what you want to be sat on a terrace drinking wine is that what you want <laughs> winning european and world cups yes yes that is where i want to be were you considered most handsome in your 50s? Yes, of course. So. She's in Italy. Well, she was in Italy for a year. And then, of course, what do you do once you finish your education? Grand tour. No, that, that oh. was her grand tour. It was quite a mini grand tour, to be fair. Oh, right, OK. She was packed off to London as an eligible young woman in need of a suitable marriage offer. Oh, she has to be, um, what's the word? There's a thing. A debutante. And That's the one. On the yeah, 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 yeah. And Constance... She was, uh, you know, she was quite high up. So she was presented to Queen Victoria herself on St. Patrick's Day, 1887, in her debutante dress. Oh, wow. Aye. And though Constance dutifully did the yearly rounds of balls and social gatherings, it wasn't really her scene. She was more Good of a, a country girl. She'd rather be astride a horse chasing down a fox than she would... Dancing daintily at a ball. Oh my god! So she's she's basically like the the the, the stereotype of the landlord's daughter who like really she'd be best to match with a with a bit of rough. Yeah, <laughs> she's hunting, shooting, fishing kind of girl. Yeah, a, a, a gamekeeper whose eye was cast far above his station would be her ideal match kind of thing. I'd I'd have imagined she'd have been more happy if that's what had happened. Yeah, it, but it didn't happen though because well, no, well, real life isn't Lady Chatterley's lover. <laughs> what happened was she spent five years going on the circuit trying to find a husband Ugh. and just rejecting every little fop that came her way based yeah, on because... the fact that he couldn't handle a rifle the way that she expected him to. Yeah. Again, the fops are just like, oh, I would really like 32,000 acres in Ireland. Yeah, yeah, I could gamble that away in a week. And as she watched all of her, you know, single friends get married, she realised that that's... None really, of them were actually happy. Yeah, that wasn't what she wanted to do. And she retreated more and more into solitary activities and the painting and drawing that Squidge had taught her became mm. more and more of an obsession to the point where after five years of not attracting a husband... She was hmm. finally able to convince her family to allow her to pursue her new passion for drawing and painting um, <laughs> and enrol in the Slade School of Fine Art in 1892. 
Oh well, at the age congratulations. of twenty-five. Yeah, because yeah, obviously at twenty-five she's like basically a hideous, worn-out husk of a woman. Yeah, yeah they're like, well, at least you're not going to get married now, are you? Yeah, at least it might <laughs> stop you doing anything stupid, <laughs> like having a bastard. <laughs> yeah, if we, if maybe you can just you can just be the the slightly eccentric member of the family who does painting because they'd had other children. Yeah. So they were like, well, there was there were spares. Yeah. And she wasn't an heir anyway, as a non-boy. So you're a lost cause, but we'll get you yeah. out of the way. So there's they, no dowry coming our way. Mm. Sigh, move on. <laughs> they did, however, express some misgivings at her. You know, joining the humanities. They'd rather she'd have done a hard science. Um, <laughs> and her family's I mean, misgivings yeah. were almost immediately validated. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say no, women weren't in hard sciences at that point, and you'd be right. No, no. No, I mean, Marie Curie was knocking about at about that time, wasn't she? She was so, an like, exception. Yeah, I know, but, like, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it wasn't totally impossible. I was, I, what I was actually going to say was I, I almost wish she had done in, gone into hard... I mean, I'd, I'd not seen that there was any sort of genius there or, like, any even desire to go into the hard sciences given that she'd been writing and painting and stuff since childhood. But I almost wish she had, just because I'm quite enjoying this whole tradition-busting thing that she's got going on. Well, don't <laughs> like, worry, there's more. Oh, good. Yeah, but her family, her family's misgivings were almost immediately validated as, like many young people from conservative households, university she... expanded Constance's mind and introduced <laughs> her to some radical views. Oh, my God. Did she become Marxist? Well, Constance first came across the ideas of the women's suffrage movement. Ah, oh, epic. Not suffragette, suffragist movement. Yes. She immediately went all in with the idea, joining mm-hmm. the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies in 1897 and setting up the third such society in Ireland, which she was immediately voted president of. And then they decided that the major was a real lady. <laughs> a suffragette. Jet! <laughs> Ooh, I love that song. It's, it's like it's the it's the one wing song that I will go down fighting. as should have been a Beatles song. It's, it's a very very good song. I, I, I would fight anyone who said different. Now it may have been a relatively sheltered upbringing, or yes. possibly a natural sense of entitlement that comes from belonging to the nobility. Yes. Whatever the reason, Constance, in her very first speech, as far as we know ever, hmm. that was to the suffrage society demonstrated an innocent and straightforward approach to solving political problems. We should just go and ask for it, and they will give it to us because it is right. (laughs) Essentially, she said thus. Oh, my God. (laughs) Now, in order to attain any political reform, you all know that the first step is to form societies, to agitate and force the government to realise that a very large class have a grievance and will never stop making themselves disagreeable till it is righted. So that was it. It was basically, if we grumble enough... Of course they're going to see that they need to change things. Oh, I mean, she's not wrong. It just She just needs to expand her definition of grumble. <laughs> well, My definition of grumble includes armed revolution. Well, I, I will agree. It was quite a simplistic view of enacting change. But it was also a simple message and it encouraged action. Good for her. And definitely- you know what? Like you, you got to get pebbles after pebbles after roll to start an avalanche and all of that, don't they? So. Yeah, and she was just going. Well, you know, all we need to do is make noise, and someone will listen. Mm. And naive but optimistic. She got good reviews from the crowd who attended the inaugural meeting at the schoolhouse <laughs> in Drumcliff. And I say the crowd; two thirds mm. of them were men. So she was, she, you know, she was. Yeah, I could see that. Though. What could have been a hostile audience, and she managed yeah, but- to win them over. I could see it because, like, nothing breeds empathy like fellow feeling, which I know sounds like a tautology, but actually isn't. But, like, 
it, it you're speaking to an already downtrodden class. Mm. Like they're going to have much. They're going to have like Irish men at the time, especially Irish Catholic men who were you know prevented from voting, holding land, all the rest of it. They're going to be much more like, well, actually, we are all the same. You know, like you've got nothing, I've got nothing. Why can't we all have something? It's it's a it's a much smaller conceptual leap because they've got nothing to lose. And you've hit the nail on the head there, Matt. Yeah. Because it was felt by the suffragists that putting pressure on the nationalist politicians would be more fruitful than looking to influence the unionist ones, as there was a sense that the Irish Republicans were more open to extending the vote to women. Yeah. So, yeah. Logical. It's, well, you're being denied certain things the same we are, so if we all work together, we can all get what we want. Yeah, And as a result of this sort of sense of camaraderie or, you know, sort of joint enterprise... Constance began to become more aware of the broader political situation in Ireland. You know, a bit broader than what she previously accepted, which was that Daddy can own all of this. And that's fine. Yes. And all of the people who are barely above starvation, they should just be happy. That's just the way of things. If if they, if if God had wanted them to, to be nobles, they'd be born noble. That's the truth of it. They'd have joined a religion that, let's face it, has only been around for 300 years at this point. And is better. Yes. Of course, don't forget that one. Oh, yes. Yes. It's, we have to we've refined it we, in the same we, way that, you know, diamonds are essentially refined coal. Isn't <laughs> Protestantism just refined Catholicism? <laughs> the, diamond of, the diamond of Protestantism from the coal of papery. <laughs> <laughs> However, further investigation into the causes of Irish nationalism would have to wait as Constance had decided that in order to finish her artistic training, she would naturally need to spend some time in Paris. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. We seem to be getting somewhere on this voting thing, but I need to go draw. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, she, she, she's very definitely a child of the nobility, isn't she? Like... She, set up, she set up her suffragist, you know, um, group in Ireland, yeah. uh, had a couple of meetings, went, yes, yes, agitate people, that'll sort mm. it, and thought, I have sorted women's rights, I'm going to go over to Paris for a couple of years. You know, I need a fallback career. Yeah. Because after we've won the vote, which is bound to happen any day now, I, I need, need something, something to, to do. do. Yeah. <laughs> I can't tell if that's staggeringly optimistic, staggeringly naive or staggeringly arrogant. I suppose a bit of all three, really. Through everything, I think um, Constance is incredibly hopeful and incredibly... She keeps an innocence... That's the vibe you've got about yeah. her. Like, so we're leaning more towards optimistic and naive than arrogant well, here. I don't know if it's innocence or a sense of um, everything being binary. Inherent justice kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it, like, this is this is so clearly right that like, I just can't even conceive that people would yes. stand against it. Yeah. It will be not done, and then as soon as I convince them it's right, it will be done. There will not be steps in between. Therefore, all I need to do essentially is flick switches. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. things will get better. Hmm. Fair enough. Sometimes you need, like, you know, uh, someone who's a bit of a social moron to get things going, it's true. <laughs> anyway. Well, this social moron was in Paris, and she attended the <laughs> Académie Julienne from 1898. Uh. Theatrically, donning a wedding ring on her finger to denote that she had decided that she would be married to her art. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, I so mean, she's, 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 what, 26, 27 now? So she's like, well... Completely on the slag heap of life. <laughs> it was like, I'm making the choice to be married to art. And everyone's like, are you? Are you? <laughs> Is it, in fact, that you have none of the attributes that a Victorian, like someone who's appropriate for your status? Because I'm assuming that for all that she wanted to change, she still wasn't quite ready to do the whole, I'm going to reject all of daddy's money and marry someone for love kind of thing. So, 
Well, you see, the thing is, fate has a sense of irony and comic timing because within a year she had met the man who would become her husband. Oh, well, that's nice. I hope hope she actually liked him and it wasn't just some arsehole that Dad sent. Oh, he wasn't an arsehole. He was a Count. He was Count (laughs) Kazimir Markovich. What a name. Yeah. Eastern European. Well, yes, Markovich was Polish, but he was also handsome, an artist, six years younger than Constance, and was still technically married to his first wife. Uh, There are many complications here. (laughs) Well, he insisted they were separated. And to be fair, it became less of an issue a few weeks after they'd met when his first wife died in the Ukraine of typhoid. Oh, well, you know, problems have solved themselves. (laughs) Good news, Constance. I don't need a divorce anymore. (laughs) Look, I've got this death certificate. That's just as good. (laughs) The two lovers celebrating the death of a woman in Ukraine, spent their days cycling together in the French countryside, and Casimir even found an excuse to fight a duel in order to defend Constance's honour during their courtship. That must have been one of the last duels ever, because I'm pretty sure they were outlawed not long after that. To be fair, I think duelling had actually been outlawed in France quite a while before, but it didn't stop Casimir. And he, he was just a fool in love. Yeah, and to be fair to him, he actually won after wounding the offending Frenchman in the thigh with a rapier. Oh, the, the guy you thought was French? Yes. Good. Well, they Maybe were in France. I mean, the odds were quite high that it would be a Frenchman. Well, I mean, it depends. It depends, you know, in what social circles they were moving in Paris. You know, it could quite easily have just been a coterie of international layabouts. So. I think it was, but again, <laughs> some of them were French. So. <laughs> and after, after so. seeing Casimir, you know, risk his life... To, to fight with this Frenchman. Again, I only know that Casimir had a rapier. I don't know what the Frenchman was armed with. It may have been that the Frenchman thought it was going to be Queensbury rules with fists, and then Casimir just pulled a blade on him. It's a, it's a poetry duel. And just stabbed him in the leg and went, I win. Yeah, the Frenchman just laid down some sick bars, and Casimir was completely outdone. He was like, nope, not having this. <laughs> not today, Jacques. Not today. <laughs> But it didn't really matter about the details because Constance She was, was bowled over oh, by yeah. it, yeah. And the two got married on September 29th, 1900. Well, mm. uh, that's not strictly true because actually they got married three separate times that day. They were just so damned in love. <laughs> Firstly, at the registry office. Right. Secondly, at the Russian legation, which apparently is a lesser form of an ambassador. Oh, that'll have been because he'll have been Eastern Orthodox, wouldn't it? Yep, yep. And right. finally, at a Protestant church. <laughs> they had to really jump through the hoops on yeah. that one, didn't they? Constance refused to say that she will obey her new husband at all three of the services. Good for her. Yeah, she's I, like, bet the, I bet the Orthodox priest in particular was really cheesed off about that. It took a while to get through to him that she, she did understand what he was asking her to say. She just <laughs> wasn't going to say it. It was between this elderly Russian man just blathering on. <laughs> Because, just do it, man. Just just flick the water. Let's, let's just move on. Because, again, Constance, she was like, I, I wouldn't lie. Yeah. There, are, there are going to be times when we disagree, and in those cases, I'm going to do what I want. This is a house of God. I can't lie here. Yeah. <clears throat> the first child, Maeve, was born in 1901 in Ireland. Oh, she went with an Irish name. Yeah. Nice. And the new family settled down in Dublin where Constance and Casimir established themselves as key figures in the city's United Arts Club. This was meant to be simply a place for artists to share ideas, but it quickly turned into a meeting place for radical Irish Republicans. Nice. Because to be fair, it was a fertile breeding ground for Irish Republicanism. 
as at the time... Casimir didn't give a fuck. <laughs> he's Polish, he can just run back to Eastern Europe if it all goes wrong. <laughs> Isn't there an inherent contradiction to you being a count and an ancestral landlord and a Republican? No, I don't see that at all. <laughs> no, apparently the, the title of count, it, it didn't actually come with any land. It was just like a, an... Um... Oh, it's one of the latter-day European noble titles. Yeah. Like everything's gone except the title, yeah. but you bum around Europe because some auntie somewhere feels sorry for you, yeah. bums and you cash every now and again. Some English noble is going to be impressed by the fact that you're called a count and is going to allow their daughter to marry you. Well, it makes you dashing because it's one of the few ranks of nobility that we don't have in the UK. Mm. Well, at the time that they were in Dublin... Over one-third of all the residents of the city were living in slums, with practically no plumbing and no prospects of ever improving their situation due Jesus. to the chronic unemployment and extortionate rents. Because unlike Belfast in the north, Dublin Shipping. wasn't an industrial centre. Yeah, it had yeah. no go-to jobs for anyone. It was just a whole bunch of people living in a place. <laughs> yeah. There was a growing sense that the only way to rectify the issues was self-governance. And even in the more affluent areas, the support for home rule was growing. Yeah. I mean, just just as an aside, it didn't quite turn out that way, did it? Because they got home rule and then like, you ended up with a country that stayed agrarian for the next 70 years. <laughs> it was it was perfectly possible to go to Ireland in the 70s and find like an entire village that just didn't have electricity. And like they didn't really industrialise. That's why the Celt- that's why the Celtic Tiger turned up in the 90s, wasn't it? Because they went from like nothing to, oh, look, the internet. <laughs> Well, I, th- I feel like we may have hobbled them at the start of the industrial revolution. Oh, no, I'm, 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 no, no, I'm not. I'm not blaming the Irish. I'm just saying that, it, like, <clears throat> unfortunately for them, it really didn't work out that way, and you just sort of it, ended up. With it a, did. A they just had quite the way to catch up. No, <laughs> no, really, like, like uh, I know it's outside of your UK history scope, but I've read some of the books on it because I find it really fascinating. Because it's just like. You know, you hear all these stories about um, what the priesthood and the, the nuns and stuff got up to, and um, you know, during the last between the thirties and the seventies in Ireland, like all the horrible abuse and stuff, and it's just they really made no leaps forward. It's one of the reasons that the IRA was so um, well supported in in the um, in the state of Ireland was because they were desperate to reunite with the North because they needed the money and the industrial expertise that was still housed at the time, and you know, when the troubles were really kicking off. It was before shipbuilding had been stripped out of Belfast, mm. and they really, like Belfast was a real prize because it would have totally transformed their national economy. Even in the seventies, they were like that far behind. They just they couldn't get anywhere because they had nothing to offer as an alliance. Mm. Like obviously, the Americans supported them to a certain extent, but not to the extent you know, like they had no military value. So there was no point industrializing Ireland because. What are you going to do? Invade England? <laughs> like the number one military no, uh, ally to America. I mean? Ireland was just a place to say you were from. Yeah, I mean, and they bummed For a points. few quid, and, and they made they made problems. You know, it, it was a complicated situation. But it's uh, I, anyway, it's a complete aside. It's not really relevant to the story. Well, we're but in just, the innocent times before all of that, yeah. where some people thought, you know, it, home all rule the problems would... will be solved. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But in spite of her association with many of the leading Republicans, Constance appeared to be focused mainly on her art. And, <laughs> Mainly on landscapes, and so she got left alone, and the the busies never bothered her. Well, basically. no, she, the conversations were going on around her, but she was just busy focusing on her her art career. Yeah, until that is, she rented a cottage just outside of Dublin in 1907. Mm. Mm. The previous renter had happened to be a man called Padraig Colum, mm. a poet and champion of the Irish literary literary revival group. Yeah. When packing up his things, Padraig had accidentally left some copies of a journal behind, which Constance had found and read on a whim. 
probably on a rainy Sunday when she had nothing else to do. Oh, I'll have a quick flick through. The journal was called The Peasant and Sinn Féin. Oh, wow. And Constance was so engrossed that she emerged from the college transformed into a committed Irish Republican, writing that, I awoke to find that Ireland had not surrendered and that there were men and women who had not acquiesced to the conquest. She decided immediately, again, this is binary Constance, she was all in with the movement, and she sought to join the revolutionary women's movement, Daughters of Ireland. Oh, I bet that went down like a lead balloon. Well, she wanted to make a good impression, uh, and she was invited to a meeting finally, and she, she had to go. The problem was, that meant that she would have to double book herself that evening, and the first engagement she was going to was a ball at Dublin Castle. which was the epicentre of British rule in Ireland. Yeah. So she turned up from Dublin Castle to a meeting at the Daughters of Ireland, still wearing a full ball gown and with the literal diamonds in her hair. Wow. Yeah, like the phrase lead balloon doesn't seem strong enough at this point. Well, yeah. Amazingly, the other revolutionary women were not impressed and probably thought Constance was either... Taking the piss, yeah. Or was the world's worst spy. <laughs> because, remember, through all of this, although, you know, her family owned land in Ireland, she yeah. had a very English accent. Received yeah, of course, pronunciation. Of yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, well, she'd had to. She was presented to Queen Victoria. There's no way they're going to let some yeah. pleb with an Irish accent talk to the Queen. Jesus. Yeah, but she channeled that experience of having to stand and answer questions in front of Queen Victoria. And she was able to completely ignore their cold stares and the lack of manners, and the calling her an English bitch, and everything. <laughs> and she won them over. Oh, yeah, me? by the end of the meeting, Countess Are Constance Markievicz had won them over. <laughs> completely. And not only had she won them over, she'd been voted in as a member. No way. <clears throat> because basically, if you turn up in a ball gown and diamonds, <laughs> and everyone gives it the best at you, and you just sit there and, and go... you showed nothing. <laughs> yeah. So, am I allowed to come next week? They'll go... She's all right. (laughs) Balls of steel. Balls of absolute steel. (laughs) She threw herself into the movement with everything she had to the point that her husband became estranged. Wow. He moved back to Eastern Europe in 1913, never to return, and her daughter was moved to live with her grandparents. I wonder what happened to to him before he died. Oh, no, no, no. He he just continued to live his life. They never got divorced, and he right. would visit with her, and he would try and support her, but it's like you said before, he just totally didn't understand the passion and why she suddenly wanted to affiliate affiliate herself with these, you know, Irish Republicans. Who basically, yeah, basically wanted to take absolutely everything that they had away from her. Yeah. and it, from, his, from, 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 from the sort of standard landowner POV. Like. Well, from his point of view, the two of them had the painting, they both had um, allowances that they got from their family, so they were living quite comfortably, and then she was yeah. like, no, 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 no. I don't want any of that anymore. It's like, but we've got a nice life. She's like, no, because there it's are people in Ireland me, who aren't yeah. free and don't have the same rights. And he's like, okay, I'm gonna go back to I'm gonna go back to Poland now. <laughs> Hopefully, I can find some Polish people to oppress. That's my thing. <laughs> I just think I, I, it, it must be in my blood, darling. But oppression—it's just the way of the world. <laughs> but having pushed her family away, yeah. she was now free to engage in direct action for the cause while still receiving an allowance. No. Oh really? Oh, that, all she of that. Pushed them away to that extent. She pushed them away to that extent. The allowance wow. quickly dried up. She still I mean, had a lot of stuff. Don't worry. She was she was yeah. still incredibly rich. Right. 
but because they couldn't take the things that they'd given her back. Yeah, and you know when you're wearing little no, no. diamonds in your hair, without my allowance, I'd be forced to sell all of my diamonds. Yeah, all of these no. very expensive diamonds. But weirdly, considering she was all in on Irish republicanism, her first yeah. political action did not take place in Ireland. Rather, it took place in Manchester. <laughs> Inspiring the generations of heroic bombers to follow. Jesus. It wasn't a bombing, don't worry. I know it wasn't a bombing. It was because the Daughters of Ireland, along with a range of suffrage groups, were annoyed mm. that one of the candidates standing in the Manchester North by-election, mm. a man by the name of Winston Churchill, was yeah. refusing to support legislation to allow women to vote. Wouldn't he have been a, li- he'd been a he liberal? He was a liberal at, at the time, but yeah. he wasn't particularly a fan of women voting. He also was Dick. specifically, at this time, he was standing in the way of legislation that would allow barmaids to be a thing because he didn't think that women should be in a pub, even as a, in a yeah. subservient role. It, it, Winston Churchill around this time is kind of like a, a, a weird... Like, you can very much see why Boris Johnson imagines that he's like Winston Churchill because he doesn't fit neatly into any political party really because at the time Churchill was very much on he was one of the loudest voices calling for what would even now be a massive radical wealth redistribution like he he, he it doesn't really get much attention but like there was a proposed budget on the table around 1913 and Churchill was a big supporter for it and basically it would have been like right we're going to take 15% off landowners like straight off the top <laughs> we're, just, we're just having it like can you imagine that getting through now? Because I can't. <laughs> and it was it was in danger of like, you know, it was a serious political consideration, and he was all for it. So like, he had that on one side. On the other hand, just this horrible misogynist. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. so he he made up his mind on racist, women having the right to vote quite early on because even a decade before he was standing for this by election in eighteen ninety seven, he wrote, and this is a direct quote from Churchill: "It is contrary to natural law." and the practice of civilised states, and no necessity is shown to allow women the vote. Only the most undesirable class of women are eager for their right, while those women who discharge their duty to the state via marrying and giving birth to children are adequately represented by their husbands. So he's like, any woman worth her salt will have discussed with her husband who he's going to vote for. So <laughs> And influence things that way. <laughs> yeah, so why do they need their own votes? Amazing. Constance disagreed with him. (laughs) Yeah, well, who wouldn't? And campaigned against Churchill by driving an extravagant carriage pulled by four white horses around Manchester to draw attention to the suffragist cause. And apparently, a man, as she was driving through, shouting her slogans against Churchill, a man shouted at her, Yeah, but can you cook a dinner? And she responded, Yes. Can you drive four horses? (laughs) Quote of the century. Love it. Bitch. <laughs> yeah, like, by like early twentieth century standards, that is basically mic drop, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. You bet he ran off to the to the flat cap pub or whatever it was that he was drinking in and just like downed his sorrows in a pint of gin. Or <laughs> Churchill lost the election on April twenty fourth nice. due in part to the campaigning of the suffragists, which was a little bit embarrassing, as the reason the by election had been called is because he had been made a member of cabinet, and there used to be a rule that if you were uh, promoted to the cabin- cabinet, there had to be a by-election. Because they couldn't guarantee that you'd be getting the same level of representation yes. as you had other duties. Wow, we've actually gone backwards. Yeah, yeah. Jesus Jesus Christ, we are a rubbish country. I'm sorry, anyone who's listened to this and thinks our country's good is an idiot. <laughs> I once saw a quote, 
I say once, it was the other week, I saw a quote on the internet from some commenter or the other, I don't even remember, it's nobody notable, but it struck me, because it was, China is terrifying to live in, because they give the appearance of being a country with laws, but it's actually a closed system set up entirely for the benefit of people who are completely unaccountable. And I thought... That could <laughs> describe our country Yeah, quite I was like, like, so, that, so that's the UK then, isn't it? <laughs> um, we are a joke of a nation, an absolute joke. Well, to be fair, Churchill took the loss... And he reflected on it. And, and he doubled dis- down on no, hating No, women. he decided he needed to resolve his misogyny and he went to therapy. <laughs> and he talked through his issues. And he emerged from it all a better person. Yeah, that didn't happen. No, he stood in Dundee in a by-election as, two weeks as later. As a Tory, didn't he? Yeah. No, no, still as a Liberal. Oh, still as a Liberal. Huh? He, he waited two weeks, stood in Dundee and won. Uh, so pff, it, yeah. it affected him not a jot. It was well, a symbolic you know, victory, at best. Yeah, well, you, you know, my God, we couldn't have the grandson of the du- of the Duke of Marlborough um, mm. discomforted, could but we? Jesus Christ! Constance, binary as she was, she'd won that one. Yeah, misogyny in England was sorted, so she was back to Ireland and busily <laughs> taking on any tasks she could to support the setting up of republican organisations. Yeah, I mean, we're getting dangerously close to the war now, aren't we? Well, I don't mean the, I don't mean the first one. First World War, I mean the War of the Irish Free State. We're, we're getting close to more things of note happening. Mm. But firstly, starting off low-key, Constance designed the masthead and later wrote articles for the newly formed Republican newspaper Bin Iran. I hope mm. I've got that right. The yeah, first Irish, woman's... Irish is horrible to pronounce from the way it's written. Like you really need to speak to someone who can actually speak it to well, ask them, don't you? This was the first woman's newspaper ever published in Ireland. In one article, she advised other women wanting to support the cause of of Irish nationalism to, and this again is a direct quote, dress suitably in short skirts and strong boots, leave your jewels in the bank, and buy a revolver. Uh, Again, I really like her, but I feel like she's like a crazy eccentric rather than a serious revolutionary. (laughs) Would it help if I told you that her columns were ostensibly about gardening? No, not in terms of not <laughs> thinking that she's an eccentric. I, I, like, she's, she's, she's basically just writing like, about gardening and just throws in apropos of nothing. Buy a revolver. She's coming off almost as like the Jeremy Clarkson of Irish Republicanism. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not, not really the worst thing in the world because that kind of bombast is always popular and like useful oh, to a She was nothing extent. if not bombastic. Yeah. And she also, at the same time, she co-founded an Irish scouting group for boys in 1909, as she feared that allowing the British Boy Scout Association to have access to young Irish boys would encourage enlisting in the British Army. Yes, that was literally the whole point of the scouting mm. movement. Yeah, she <laughs> described the British Army at the time, by the way, as a mercenary army that was the most immoral in the world. Difficult to argue against. <laughs> I mean, the, the th- there's, there's a reason that um, the school I went to really really emphasized that just before world war one the british were like really they were feared for the technical proficiency never really spoke about the moral dimensions of what they were doing it was all training about, boys yeah they can they can they can do five rounds rapid better than anybody else the germans who fought the first british army you know the, mm. you know the ones who'd been professional soldiers before there was a world war one they thought that every man was equipped with a machine gun because they could fire rifle bullets so damned quickly. It was like it was considered impossible, and they'd like that. That's basically it was that for like two terms. Just how great was the British Army and how good they were at what they did and how professionally organised they were and how they were badly let down by like mechanisation and mass recruitment and stuff. And it's just like 
at the time, it'd be like 14, it was just like, yeah, guns, awesome, red coats, Zulu, you know. Like. No, it's like, we were training children. We, yeah. we had child soldiers at yeah, one point in our history. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Anyway, continue. <laughs> Constance can't take the moral high ground here because she felt that some form of armed conflict was inevitable. So she had to train children to fight on the Irish yeah, side. Yeah, she was, she, was, she was saying she didn't want children to be indoctrinated to fight on the unionist side. Yeah, but um, on the nationalist side it was okay. Well, yeah, she would often take groups of boys camping, which was code for teaching them to shoot, yeah. which is what always happens on camping holidays, and she was a crack shot. Does when I go to France. <laughs> what are you shooting? Oh, you know, stuff. <laughs> don't ask questions you don't want the answer to. Unfortunately for Constance, though, her increasingly fiery rhetoric, rhetoric even, uh, and yeah. ad hoc military-style training camps for young children had been noted by the authorities in Dublin Castle. Yeah. Not only did they stop inviting her to official functions, shock Jesus. horror, but they Jesus. started paying close attention to her speeches, looking oh, for anything that might be considered treasonous. <laughs> <laughs> Which was just about everything. <laughs> Well, especially on June 10th, 1910, which was the coronation day of George V, mm. Constance attended a massive nationalist meeting. The Republicans were incensed that there was to be a planned visit of the new king to Ireland, and they wanted to discuss potential methods to disrupt any visit should it occur. Yeah. In front of a crowd of around 30,000 people, Constance oh, spoke God. out publicly against the new king, and when the visit did take place, she was involved in several protests attempting to burn a Union Jack and throwing stones at pictures of George V. Yeah, it's, 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 it's just right on the edge of devolving into violence, mm. isn't it? Proper violence at this point, isn't it? Because I think it's 1912 when the war kicked off, wasn't it? The uh, first proper, like, martial-type no, rebellion. The, the, well, we're going to talk about the first proper rebellion, so don't worry. Yeah, yeah. We'll get the dates sorted out. Yeah, yeah, I'm but, probably, I'm, I'm not remembering it properly. Constance herself, she was arrested at a further mass meeting in August. Yeah. Though she was apparently disappointed not to be charged with treason, only with <laughs> making derogatory remarks. I mean, really? Because they would definitely still have killed her. Like, was she, was she full on ready to martyr herself for the cause of it? Oh, yes. Oh, right, okay. Well, I mean, not that it makes it okay because a waste of life is a waste of life, especially one as sort of unique and interesting as hers. But um, it was about do street do. cred as much as anything because even though she'd set she up had to the scouting the movement yeah, yeah, and yeah. she'd done all of these things, she was still considered an outsider. But her being arrested, being tried, yeah, she was finally part of the in group. Got her in with the cool kids. Yeah. <laughs> and not only was she accepted, but she was allowed to join the Irish Citizen Army, which was created to protect workers from strike breakers mm. during the lockout of 1913. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know what the lockout was, it was the largest strike action in Irish history when 20,000 workers took a stand against the poverty wages they were being paid by the 300 biggest employees in Dublin. And it lasted... Every single one of which would have been English-owned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I say 300 biggest... 300 biggest English employers in Dublin. Yeah. It lasted from August 26th, 1913, to January the 18th, 1914. You know, if they just treated the Irish like people, <laughs> they would still be part of the UK today. Like, they, they walked so slowly towards violence. It took forever. You're talking... 60, 70 years of 
boiling rage. Like, and every opportunity, all they asked for was dignity and equality with English peasants. Not, not even like yeah. they, they, they didn't, they didn't demand like get out of Ireland right now. Blah blah blah. All like it's, it really did start out as just treat. Can you treat us like people? Can we be allowed <laughs> to, to, to just? have a position can we can we be councillors on local councils you know if we're voted in can we just be can we just be human that's all it's literally all they wanted can we own land above a certain size it took so long to get to the point where they were like right i'm sick of this they get they have to go they just have to go it's it the arrogance on display from the british and it was the British because, like, I am fairly certain that there were Scots and Welsh involved in the upper administration at this point, like, all the way through. I'm not going to fall back on yeah, saying Yeah, but it's English. the amalgam. It's the British. It's the the idea yeah, of yeah. the British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, the, the arrogance of the state and, like, the whole civil service and the nobility and, and just the establishment in general is unbelievable. Because if they'd bent even slightly... Like, like, it didn't even have to be, like, a meaningful bending beyond, OK, your people... What difference would that actually have made? Like, it's just unbelievable. You can well, still then, charge pot. You, you may have to admit Cromwell was wrong. Who cares? Did anyone actually care? Apparently they did. Apparently they did. He doesn't even have descendants. And it's not like it would piss off the royals because they, they had a sort of inbuilt kind of no, you, like Cromwell guy. The problem was you accept that they are equal citizens and they will say things like, well, our family used to own this. Um, and it was taken from them by force, by a military action. Um, we'd like it back. So it was a yeah, case but, of protecting right, what but, the Protestants had gained. Right, see, see, I get that. But equally, the British Empire were past masters of divide and com- of divide and rule. Like, it's not like it would have been hard for them to go, right, OK, first we do that. Then we take, then we find some almost middle-class Irish people and we raise them right up. Who, and we make damn sure that they're not the same people who used to own land 400 years ago. Because now they're going to fight each other. Because what's going to happen is the people who are going to turn... Like, I'm not Don't saying worry. this would be the right... Divide and conquer right. does happen. Yeah, I know, but it doesn't really... It's just stupid, isn't it? They, they, they left it all way too late, and it was so... It, what I'm more railing against is just the basic stupidity. I'm not saying it's right or that I support it or that like I would go back in time and the one thing I'd do would be like cancel the Irish Free State that would become the State of Ireland and, and like because it's just wrong and that's what I feel. Like no, not at all. I'm just saying the level of stupidity on display from the British state at every step from the Irish famine onwards is unbelievable and i'm not talking about cruelty or malice like that's obviously off the charts and i'm i'm just very specifically saying they were incredibly stupid and i just it's it's staggering how stupid they were staggering because they could have had everything they wanted with just a little application of brain power well luckily for constance she wasn't bothered by these things because she has a binary brain and she decided (laughs) strike is good employers as an aside you yeah, as an aside, you keep saying binary brain. Do we, do we, are, we, are we coming down again like we did with James the Sixth? That he's poss- possibly an autistic person. Here? It, she had a very black and white way of looking at the world, which allowed Splitting. her to be as Fully forceful as she was yeah, and yeah. as focused. So she just decided, I'm supporting the strikers, mm-hmm. and she was not, all in. Yeah, 100%. she was not only on the front lines when she was injured in an unprovoked charge by policemen with batons. But she also spent every day providing regular food to workers and their families um, in a makeshift soup kitchen in the basement of Liberty Hall. In order to do so, uh, she spent masses of her own money, reportedly pawning jewellery and expensive dresses in order to buy more vegetables for the gallons of soup she organised to be made every day of the five-month strike. Full commitment. 
you got, you got to respect that. And when she wasn't doing that, apparently she was buying in shipments of fuel and she was carrying them up to the top floors of tenement buildings to deliver them by hand to every family who was suffering. So she was determined that, you know, she would be As the... far as she could, she would alleviate the suffering of yeah. the people. It's like she could see that the strike was necessary and that mm-hmm. they needed to try and, you know, front this out because what basically happened was the employers went, yeah, you'll starve before we cave. Yeah. And it was a battle of wills, and she was like, I will do everything I can to make sure you do not starve. We've got 150 years of profits to sit on, what have you got? Yeah. <laughs> and she, she did her level best. I mean, there was some support from sympathisers, but she did her level best to try and keep 25 mm. or so thousand people fed for five Jeez. months in Not order to try and win, wealth. yeah. However, but she... she was just one woman, and even with her personal funds and her tireless work... Um, the attempt to starve the workers was successful Uh, and in January they grudgingly returned to work without getting any of the demands well not only did they not get any of their demands but they were not allowed to return to work before they signed a document saying they would never attempt to join a union again Jesus so it's like yeah if you try to unionise we have a document here that says you get nothing do we know where the British Labour movement was on this? Because we're, like, we're deep into it. It's been around for a uh, while. The British Labour movement sent funds across, but they were not willing to um, come out as a strike in England. So they were like, yeah, we'll send you a bit of money, but we're not actually going to um, strike in solidarity with you, which, to be honest, was probably the thing that scuppered it. Now impoverished herself and with no progress to show for the efforts she had put in over the previous five months... Constance became convinced that military action was now the only means of securing a free island. It was a view shared by the other members of the Irish Citizens' Army, who began openly drilling, although, to be fair, when they were marching around Dublin, they were using hurley sticks in place of rifles, Mm -hmm. as they had no rifles. But Constance was sure that they would secure rifles at some point, (laughs) uh, and she designed uniforms for the members and adopted... She adopted and adapted a Polish marching song to act as an anthem. Meanwhile... Is that a song that stuck around? Is it the no, I, I couldn't find a copy of it, but I'm imagining some jaunty march, Eastern European marching music. <laughs> yeah, there's to be a lot of flourishes and stuff. Yeah. yeah. One of those were, you know, it goes on for about three minutes and then the words kick in. <laughs> like the Italian national anthem. Oh, God, the Italian national anthem. Jesus Christ, that is trolling the rest of Europe. There were only two good anthems. There were only two good ones. Mm. Uh, Russian. Okay. As in the old Soviet one. Yeah. Because it's just a banger of a tune. Yeah. And uh, the other good one is the French. Not so much for the music. It hooks you in at the start. The the music's quite good. Quite good. But then they go all in on the lyrics. It's like, I will lay down my life. It is blood for the fatherland. I'm going to make you hurt because you've dare to attack my country we are all one it's just beautiful <laughs> and it pains me to say that because you know what i say about the french yeah, I <laughs> but do. they've got they've got the best national anthem it is very true like you can't argue with that and anyone who does is a fool As a controvert we'll, we'll put it to the audience someone may come back well i mean if someone like what are they going to do belgian national anthem who even cares <laughs> the belgians i don't think they do so anyway She'd set up the uniforms and the, the marching anthem, so she'd done all the hard work. And <laughs> some of the other members the real tough stuff. <laughs> of the Irish Citizens' Army, they started trying to, you know, um, smuggle guns into Ireland. 
Mm-hmm. And there was, a, there was a serious imbalance because it was noted that the Ulster Unionist forces, mm. you know, the citizen army <laughs> that had set up, they were allowed to... Well, basically, the authorities turned a blind eye to them smuggling in £60,000 worth of yeah. guns. Yeah, quote-unquote smuggling. Yeah. <laughs> the British Army's going, wink, wink, don't steal this off the lorry, lads, wink, wink. Yeah. Uh, the Irish uh, Citizens Army, they tried to smuggle in £1,500 worth of um, guns, hmm. uh, and they managed to, but the guns were got... ancient, and right. the ammunition that was smuggled alongside the guns didn't fit the guns, and four people died in the process. So yeah. it shows a kind of disparity between the way that the British forces were treating yeah. Northern Irish Unionist um, paramilitary groups and Republican paramilitary yeah. groups. I bet that wouldn't continue into the future. No, no, they, they learned their lesson. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, but like, I mean, it, it also shows the sort of basic truth of like, this is why you don't allow your quote-unquote enemy uh, or the people you're oppressing to hold positions or have... Like any rank or you know do anything because it prevents them from if you've got no professional soldiers you're starting from absolute scratch like how would they know that the ammunition doesn't fit until they literally put it in the gun and blow their hand off well like, this is where constance setting up uh, an irish scouting group had really paid dividends because she now had uh and the irish citizens army <laughs> a crack team of under 18 yeah lunatics. basically she trained up a generation of soldiers who were indoctrinated into the irish republican movement just as much as you know british um school yeah. children were see this is the problem that it's, it's all going binary and and we know where it ends but like it's just it's it's such a it's just a damn shame that it had to get to that point luckily for the Irish Republicans. Um, in 1914, England suddenly found itself in a bit of a tiff with some of its neighbours in mainland Europe. <laughs> a slight squabble. Yeah, and the Irish Republicans saw that England had taken its eye off the ball when it came to Irish Republicanism, mm. and they thought that they might be able to do something while, you know, British military might was otherwise engaged. Mm. Through careful negotiation with Germany it was agreed that a shipment of 20,000 top-of-the-range rifles, 10 machine guns, Mm. 1 million rounds of ammunition and explosives would be delivered to support an uprising that would begin on Easter Sunday, 1916. Yeah, which to the Germans is basically a rounding error of military production at that time. But to the Irish, it would be invaluable. You want 20,000 guns? (laughs) You want 40,000, 60? That makes no damn difference to me. The plan. I don't know what accent I've got there. It's not a bit John Claude. Van Damme. <laughs> hey, hey, it's just, it's just crazy, crazy Irish guy. You want to send them some guns? Well, the planche, they're all drawn up. Uh, however, unfortunately for the Republicans, the yeah. German sense of punctuality deserted them, and the shipment arrived two days early on Good Friday. Mm. As a result, no one was there to offload the guns, and the captain was eventually challenged by British ships and forced to scuttle his own in order to stop the weapons falling into enemy hands. Yeah. So the ships ended up off so the, the coast East, of Ireland. The Easter uprising was actually just bullshit from the start. <laughs> a little bit. The order was initially given to cancel the planned actions. Yeah. However, during a meeting on Easter Sunday itself, it was decided that the uprising would go ahead the following day, using oh, the weapons no. they had. Oh, the so, poor, so amateur. poor weapons they had. Also, the fact that they'd cancelled it and then decided to go ahead with it meant that a lot of the people who were going to be involved had gone home or they missed the second message, so they ended up with a lot less manpower than they thought mm. they were going to have. 
Luckily mm. for Constance, she was better prepared than most, having access to what was described as a small arsenal of weapons, <laughs> mainly relics of her days as the daughter of a nobility hunting game in the countryside. She'd also designed a bespoke outfit for fighting a war, which she referred to as her rig. Can I just ask, like, is her family still, at, at that point in time, like, like, her family still owns the land? It's, yes, it's yes, legal, her like, brother had taken over. She's just the outcast. She's but, the black but, sheep. But essentially at any point, like, if she wanted to, she could have been like, sod this for a game of soldiers, <laughs> literally, and, and just gone back to the family estate and been like, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please take me in, and they probably would have. She she probably would have been kept on a very short leash from that point on. Yeah, I imagine it but would have yeah, been virtual yeah, imprisonment in the house. there was always an out yeah. for her. Yeah, yeah, and she never took it. That's, no. I mean, yeah, I respect that. I, I would like to make it clear at this point, before we get into the whole world of you committed that atrocity, so we committed that atrocity, and atrocities all the way down, that, like, although across the tone of this recording I've been... Very simply, it might come off that I'm massively sympathetic to the Republicans and I just think that they were right and that the Unionists were wrong. At the point at which everybody started murdering each other's children and, like, you know, trying to cause civilian casualties and all the rest of it, and when it all broke down into hell, I step back and I say everyone was wrong. And with that caveat, let's get into the gunplay. Because. The uprising began at midday on Easter Monday 1916 when the Army of the Irish Republic charged the Dublin Post Office, (laughs) ushering bewildered citizens out in order to secure the premises. Mm -hmm. So they literally just barged in during business hours and had to tell Mrs Goggins that she had to leave and know she couldn't buy the stamps because we're fortifying this as a military base. <laughs> because Postman Pat's drawn a revolver and he's mad as hell and he's not going to take it anymore. <laughs> the Republicans also took ownership of a bakery and the mm-hmm. Jacob's Biscuit Factory. Yeah. This was not because they were hungry, but because mm-hmm. these buildings all faced British military barracks. Yeah. Constance Do- herself was involved in the fighting and she took to the field of St Stephen's Green where trenches were dug and nearby roads were barricaded. They were so bold. Like, they, they so ridiculously optimistic. <laughs> Reading between the lines, there was a kind of, we're not going to win the day today, but what we can do is we can... Light um, the fire. Yeah, we can basically create some martyrs. We can prove that it, it was almost possible and inspire the, other people. The, the, the essentially jihadis. Essentially, yes. There was a half-hearted attempt to take Dublin Castle itself. Hmm. And it's a shame, really, that it was half-hearted, as there were only 27 people defending it. But although they could have police... actually had Dublin Castle. Yeah. <laughs> and when they, when they arrived, they immediately shot and killed a policeman, meaning there were only 26 oh. people there. But the Irish army contented itself with taking the town hall, overlooking the castle instead. Hmm. Constance, on St Stephen's Green, appeared to be having the time of her life she was using her rifle to take pot shots at the windows of the Shelbourne Hotel, where some British Army officers had been having lunch, you know, prior to the uprising. They returned fire with their pistols. No one was actually shot, and it was all very exciting. Yeah. Phony wars always are. Yeah. And you, although, you're at a point where nobody's really been hurt and nobody's overcommitted. And although the Irish forces could claim to have held Dublin for a day, the mm. British Army spent the night bringing in more troops stealthily. And the next morning... Constance found that it was machine gun fire rather than pistol fire that was coming from the windows of the Shelbourne. Mm. Although shots from Constance twice injured the soldiers working the machine guns, she Mm. was eventually forced to withdraw to the occupied College of Surgeons. Five casualties were left behind on the grass of the green. They got their martyrs then. Yeah, it was starting to get serious at this point. 
The Irish Republicans, although they'd secured the post office and mm. the College of Surgeons... And the biscuit factory. And the biscuit factory. Yeah, I don't want to forget the biscuit factory. But what they failed to secure were the railways, the ports, (laughs) and the telephone exchange. And as a result, the British were able to coordinate a crushing response. Artillery pieces were used to shell the Republican positions, including the post office, which Mm. subsequently caught fire. Mm -hmm. So it was a very bad day for Postman Pat. (laughs) It's, uh, It's just... It all... It's... I don't know. Mm. It's hard to stay funny and like super engaged because I know where it leads and I know that this like this is the point of no return. Like the the the, the Easter Sunday uprising is where it got it went from like a legitimate grievance where one side was so clearly in the right that you couldn't argue against it and remain logical and it was just illogical bastards on one side and the people who had justice on their side and absolutely no hope like they were noble. And then it all twists in this point. And it doesn't... I understand that the Republicans didn't become the bad guys on this day or didn't become... Not the bad guys, but, you know, a type of bad guy on this day. But it's like, this is where the path was set. This is where it became intractable. This is where the troubles... This is where they accidentally killed some civilians and had to justify that. And as soon as you justified it once... It's yeah. easier to justify it again. And I know yeah. I know that what the Republicans did was always on a smaller scale. I know that what's coming later, like the travesties of the black and tans, like using post-traumatic, stressed-out soldiers to go and terrorise the Irish population for another 10 years for no good reason, when you already knew that you were leaving. Like, the political decision had already been made. It was just sour grapes and bullshit. Like, I know that the Unionists and the, and the British state were objectively on a scale worse it kind of doesn't matter because this is the point at which it all became, like I said, intractable. It's, it's just one of the biggest tragedies. Well, the of one our thing lifetime. we can say about this was um, for the week um, of the Easter uprising, yeah. more civilians died than British and Irish Republican soldiers combined. And Constance herself would stay pinned down in the College of Surgeons until the surrender of all Irish forces was ordered on Saturday, April 29th, 1916. Mm. She reportedly kissed her gun before handing it over to the British soldiers. So she had apparently, although this has never been confirmed, she was reported as having been personally responsible for two of the 143 British soldiers killed during the six-day conflict. Constance was naturally arrested and placed in solitary confinement. For treason. Yeah. She was subject Mm. to court-martial and pled guilty to causing disaffection amongst the civil population of His Majesty, saying... And this was in her defence. I went out to fight for Ireland's freedom, and it does not matter what happens to me. I did what I thought was right, and I stand by it. She was sentenced to death by firing squad. Mm -hmm. But this was immediately commuted to life imprisonment due to her sex. You can't go (laughs) shooting a lady. (laughs) Thus proving Churchill right all along. (laughs) Even though, and we're back into comedy, folks. <laughs> even though from her cell she could hear the firing squads that were shooting the other leaders Jesus. of the Easter Uprising, yeah. she apparently complained about the fact that her sentence has been commuted, stating that she wished that the British would have the decency to shoot her. Hmm. In the end, treat, 16, treat me as I am, not yeah, as you see me. Yeah, I see sixteen that. of the leaders were executed and made yeah. martyrs, and. A lot of the British establishment, when Asquith was asked to just, for the love of God, stop it. Yeah. Because a lot of, you know, the establishment could see what was happening. It's like you you were taking these people from, 
you know, they, they only Rabble allowed rouses. a couple of thousand yeah, yeah, yeah. people to making we them can, martyrs. We can bring this back if you just don't do it, yeah. Constance, despite having her sentence commuted to life imprisonment, was released only a year later in 1917 as part of a general amnesty for people involved in the uprising. She celebrated her unexpected freedom by converting to Catholicism and becoming rearrested in 1918 for anti-conscription activities. <laughs> so she was finally all in. She was yeah. now fully acclimatised. She yeah. was a, a war hero, essentially. Yep. She was a Catholic. She had no money left. Yeah, well, I suppose weirdly, she's probably like doubled down because... like. You couldn't argue about her commitment. She'd, throw, she'd had every advantage in a bent society on the wrong side, as the Republicans would have seen it, and she'd thrown it all away to go fully in with mm. them. Like you, she was probably be, more beyond questioning than literally anyone in the cause. Yeah, because she'd chosen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she, she had a choice and then gone all in. Like, well, literally. she definitely had support from the masses because it was while serving this sentence mm. in 1918 that Constance was elected to stand as an MP for the December 1918 elections as the Sinn Féin candidate for Dublin St. Patrick. That was the name of the constituency. Right. So was she the first one to... Did she start the thing where they don't take their seats because they won't swear allegiance to the king? Uh, It was part of the 1918 intake that did that, yeah. Nice. Despite the barriers to campaigning that being incarcerated during the campaign brought, she won 66% of the vote and became the very first female MP elected to the Houses of Parliament. But she's the one that we don't talk about because she yes. never took a seat. But she was. Nancy Astor can fuck off. It was Constance who who has that accolade. I, that fucks me about. Lady Astor is only is still more famous for being the butt of a joke by Winston Churchill than she is for being the first sitting female MP. Not that she should be that famous for being the first sitting female MP, because she, as we've just learned, wasn't actually the first female MP. It's just why is all the society bullshit, Joe? Why can't <laughs> why can't it just be not stupid? Well, it's because history gets written by the winners, and as a member of Sinn Fein. Constance, of course, never attended the House of Commons as a mm. symbolic dismissal of Parliament's right to rule over Ireland. Yeah. Didn't it's... even get a salary as well, because this was before the days when they got paid, wasn't it? Yeah. Instead, she took positions in the first doll of the revolutionary Irish Republic. She would spend the next decade of her life... Oh, at... incidentally, is that how you pronounce it? Dahl? It's not Dale. Dahl. I see. This is why written Irish is Gaelic is so confusing to me. Like, you could show me the word for Irish Prime Minister until I'm dead, and I'd never have come up with Taishak for the correct pronunciation no, no, of it. No, I know. <laughs> she never became Taishak, don't worry. We don't have to try and cover that. <laughs> she would spend the next decade of her life advocating for uncompromising home rule and a united Ireland, both mm. whilst on the run, because, you know, there was the Irish Civil War, yeah. and um, as part of elected governments, when she served as Minister for Labour, and she was the only female Irish cabinet minister right up until mm. 1979. Jesus Christ. Mm. So she was very well respected then. Yeah. This Broke was a lot of trends. This was apart from a brief speaking tour of America and another prison sentence in 1923 when she went on hunger strike. Because for Constance, when the, um, the Home Rule Bill was finally passed after the end of the war, yeah. it still required sort of subservience to the king and you were essentially like Wales and Scotland are now, you know, it's like a devolved government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was all in. She was like, it's it's free island or nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So when the schism happened, she was very much on the side of the militants saying, no, 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 this is a compromise. We shouldn't have to compromise our ideals. We are an island. We should govern ourselves as an island. Mm. So 
even though she partially got what she wanted. Yeah. She was so disaffected by it. And also, all of the people that she fought for this, you know, um, Mm. Republican island with had been killed. Yeah, she viewed it as a betrayal of the memory. Yeah, yeah. and all of the new generation were going, well, actually, this is a win. Can't you see this, Constance? And she, you know, she found she was a generation out out of time. Yeah. Mm. Because nobody, having gone through the war or multiple wars and skirmishes, quite a lot of people would be like, I don't really want to fight anymore. <laughs> and she was she was still sort of respected for what she was and for what yeah. she'd done, and she was still always given a place um, in she the became the, em- the embarrassing elder aunt. Yeah, she of, was an anachronism, you know. essentially. And also it was quite embarrassing to have someone there who's constantly telling the new sort of establishment, you've sold out. Yeah. Countess Constance Markovich died mm. from complications of an appendectomy Oh, at the God, age of only 59, on July 15th, 1927. This is not the way that somebody like her should have gone. What a life. I don't know if it is, life. because by this time she'd given away the last of her wealth, supporting the cause of Irish nationalism, and through choice was placed on a public hospital ward with the poor of Dublin, which you imagine is where she felt most at home. Yeah. She also had her estranged husband and son at her side. So they come all the way back from Poland and brought I her can't roses. They were still around in the, in the bloody, uh, what would that have been, early 30s? Mm. Apparently, all the time the uh, Russian Revolution and stuff was going on, yeah. Constance was sending letters to him saying, please, please look after yourself, but you know, you really should be on the side of the Bolsheviks. <laughs> <laughs> this, w- this would all be fine if you weren't so much sort of Why attached you to your title. Her funeral procession was so well attended that it took four hours to get her body from where it had lain in state to the grave. In lieu of speeches, Constance was given a rifle salute, described <laughs> as the only speech it is proper to make above the grave of a true Fenian. So she was, in death, fully accepted. That's the journey she's made, yeah, mm. Jesus Christ. A century on from her groundbreaking election win, the Irish government presented the House of Commons with a portrait of Constance to celebrate 100 years since the representation <laughs> of the People Act, which allowed women the vote in Britain. Oh, my God, that's uh, top, top-tier political trolling. Nice. Well, <laughs> That's hilarious. I am sad to say I have not been able to find out where they decided to hang it. Or, hang on, what year would that have been presented in? Uh, this would have been uh, 2018. Right. Just before Brexit. So I have no idea where they decided to hang it or if the the picture that was presented showed Constance with a gun in hand. Theresa May would have just set it on fire, probably. (laughs) And that is the story of Countess Constance Markievicz. The revolutionary Irish Anglican. (laughs) (laughs) The British noble Irish revolutionary MP. Who never took a seat. Yeah, and who told shot the Irish British soldiers before taking her seat in the House... Well, before not taking her seat in the House of Commons. And then joining the Dale and telling the Irish... Dale, sorry, and telling the Irish... Uh, that they weren't state, doing they it weren't, properly. They weren't proper Irish. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Like, what a complicated, contradictory mess of a of glorious, life. glorious life. But the one thing you can say is, at no point in her life did she compromise. Whenever yeah, she made the decision... that's the most bizarre thing. For the moment she she had made that decision, she was 100% in unless something else came and sort of usurped that position in her... Somehow, yeah, somehow ego. over the course of her life, she managed to be a complete hypocrite in terms, mm. but also never actually once compromised her own personal beliefs. <laughs> it's unbelievable. 
what a life. And that's what, that's what I mean when I say what a life and how glorious it was because nobody gets to define their own terms. Nobody gets to go, I, this is what is right and I'm doing it and that's what I'm doing and I'm just going to keep doing it until I, until somebody stops me. Whatever you think of her politics, I'm, sh- you know, I'm sure there'll be some people out there who don't know, don't care, and I'm sure you know there might even be a few unionists listening who just hate the crap out of her and always will. But like, whatever your stance on it, you've got to admit that it is a glorious life to have lived when you've made all your own decisions. Mm. I mean, okay, once she got to a certain age, like, you know, when she was old enough, she started making her own decisions and lived by them and kept living by them and never, ever stopped. Yeah. I don't she, know she anyone who's ever done that. I don't know anyone who's done that. I don't know any great figure in history who's done that. Definitely Everybody... not Winston Churchill, the slippery no. fish. Yeah, but, you know, he's just a dickhead, wasn't he? <laughs> like, you know... Anything for power. Yeah. Well, he's a Tory, wasn't he? Well, at times. I yeah, believe he once he was a member of the Green Party. <laughs> Just suited him that week. The source I used, the main source I used for this, was Constance Markievicz, Irish Revolutionary, by Anne Haverty. And Props to Anne Haverty. That's a really interesting story. Yeah, she got a lot of... She, she went through a lot of the personal correspondence. She got a lot of the sort of... Um, the colour around what was going on. And to be mm. fair, we have really bastardised what happened during those years in order mm. to make it fit into what may be an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, you need to that. go and do the research. You need to go and read because I, I mentioned the fact that there was the land reform sort of movement. That was a, that was a an entire thing, thing yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it's worthy of multiple episodes on its own. So don't feel that if you've listened to this, you kind of understand the Irish, the Irish situation. Problem. No, no, you do not. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.